Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. Uh, I'm solo today. Frank is doing real live work, and I have uh, Thor Kingi from Alpaca Packrafts on the other end here. Thanks for coming on. Oh, glad to be here. Yeah, so I kind of um, like you to tell everybody a quick version of your story as far as uh, you didn't plan on running a packraft company uh, in the beginning, so it's kind of interesting. Tell everybody a little bit about the company and your and yourself, um, you know, and then we'll kind of go into what you guys offer and, and, and everything like that. Yeah, I'll try, I'll, I'll try to keep this relatively straightforward. So uh, I, I was super fortunate as a kid. I grew up... Um, with parents that were essentially really into the outdoors. And so I grew up as, as an out, as an outdoor kid. I know a lot of people that get really into outdoor adventures. You know, they come to it later in life because they may have grown up in a city with parents that didn't do that, but that was not my parents. My mom was a hardcore kayaker and, um, skier and who moved up to Jackson Hole. My dad was a, um, climbing ranger who also moved up to Jackson Hole and he was a, he, Ended up in the National Park Service as a climbing ranger. And so, and then we moved up to Alaska in 1981 when I was three years old. So I grew up in rural Alaska in the national parks doing trips with my parents every summer, river trips, backpacking trips, climbing trips, you kind of name it. And I went to college at, at Colorado College down in Colorado Springs, and they had a grant program there for students to do like a two week, uh, wilderness trip. And I, it's funny as a kid growing up doing all this stuff, I didn't know what to do. And my parents suggested I talk to this kind of well-known adventurer named Roman Dial, who's from Alaska. And I didn't know Roman at that time. I met him at a coffee shop and he goes, you got to try pack rafting. This is like 1997. And I had no idea what pack rafting was, but he, he explains it in super basic terms. It's basically, you're in Alaska. There's big rivers everywhere. They're really hard to cross. They're really hard to move up and down without a boat, but boats are traditionally heavy and then you can't hike. So if you have this, a, a little raft that goes in your backpack, you can hike wherever you want to go. And then when you get to a river, you can either float down or float across it. And Roman kind of set us up with a trip in the Alaska range that was 200 miles long. And he's like, well, you need a good pack raft. And I was like, okay. Said, well, there there are no good pack drafts. This company, Sherpa Snowshoe Company, made one in 1980, and uh, I have one, and my friends have one, but um, we would never let you borrow them or sell you one because they're too valuable. So you're going to need to go down to Walmart or Kmart or something like that, and, um, or Cabela's, and buy this Sevler trailboat. And it was 69 bucks. It was made out of vinyl, and it was super sketchy for the backcountry, but it kind of worked. So me and five friends set on this off on this 200 mile traverse of the Alaska range. I think we we're 19 years old. And we're like, Hey, this is pretty cool. And we had epic raft failures, like two foot long tears in the boat, you know, that we're patching with duct tape and aqua steel and all this stuff. But the sort of concept of being able to, to travel over land and water out of a single backpack really kind of stuck with me. And Two years later, we ended up doing a much more ambitious trip, and we did a 700-mile traverse of the Brooks Range from the Central Arctic Refuge all the way to the village of Kobuk. And that took us 40 days, and we used the same style boat, and we had the same kind of failures. And we ended up walking a lot of sections that we would, would have loved to have floated, but the boats just weren't holding up. And when I got back from that trip, my mom, who was in 
had been in outdoor clothing designs for a long time. And she had made ski clothing and dog mushing clothing and all this stuff. It was like, you know, I'm a boater. I, I can figure this out. I, we can, we can make a boat that'll work for you. And that's quite literally how Alpaca Raft started was in the basement, cutting up, uh, urethane coated materials and trying to, um, turn them into an inflatable raft. And, you know, we still have our first prototype that was from late 2000, like October 2000. Um, and it just kind of slowly snowballed from there. 20 years later, here I am trying to manage uh, 35 to 40 employees making a whole bunch of rafts a year from everything from whitewater to still original backcountry adventures to hunters and fishermen. So it's kind of been a wild ride. And, and you're all made uh, here in Colorado for the most part, correct? A hundred percent. Yeah, we have an interesting business model. We're still a, uh, you know, as we've been growing, this has been a little more challenging, but we're still a, a made-to-order company. So when you order a boat from us, we pretty much cut it from scratch. So all made here in Southwest Colorado, and then all of our fabric actually comes from the United States. Uh, the major, all of our webbing, um, I'd say about 80% of our buckles come from the U.S., and then we have a few small parts that we import, and that's about it. Gotcha. And I know you're in the same boat as, as we are, um, in a lot of ways, cause you know, we're all made in the U S here in, in Colorado. Um, well, most of it's Colorado. There's a few things we have made out of state. Um, but you know, needle yeah. thread the whole nine. Um, yeah. and, I, and I've used, um, what, well, two of your competitors, um, rafts who pretty much kind of blueprinted what you're doing and then shipped a lot of it overseas and and then they do stamp an american flag on it but it's not really american made it's kind of sort of somewhat put together in the u.s and the rest is in china and and it's not exactly a fair comparison um because they cheat the system quite a bit we deal with that and i and i know you do as well like i said i've i've used the the competitors rafts and i was like Huh, they pretty much blueprinted what alpaca is doing. Yeah, it's like, I, you know, I appreciate, you know, this is one of the always challenging things. And you never kind of know, I think you guys are probably in the same boat as business owners, whether where to kind of stand on some of this stuff. Because on the one hand, I'm sitting here going, hey, that's not fair. Like we've put all this money into R&D and testing and whatever. And then you guys just, you know, basically do what we do. On the other hand, you kind of sit there and you, you kind of have to step back and say, well, you know, I guess imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And, you know, if, if people are, we do not have a monopoly on good ideas. I'll put it that way. And I mean, we've got probably 20 products on the drawing board that we just don't have time to get to. So I sometimes think, you know, if someone else out there was really dedicated and wanted to like, pour their kind of heart and soul into making awesome pack wraps. There's room to do that. But most most people end up just looking at what alpaca does, making something similar. There's some, you know, as the market's mature, there's definitely some more variation in it. But we see, you know, unbelievable levels of copycatting. And, you know, we just kind of roll with those punches knowing that we ultimately, we think we make a better product with better fabric better construction and better warranty and then we make it here in the u.s and i'm not i i would say that i am i don't know how you feel about this but the thing that i'm probably the most 
proud about making stuff in the U.S. is just it's just the job aspect more than anything. I've got 30 to 35 people that make boats for us here in um, you know Mancos, Colorado. It's a town of 1,300 people, and it's a really good paying job for here. They love their jobs, and if I were to um, offshore the product, I might make, have a little more money in my pocket, but I'd take 35 jobs away. Yeah, we're in the same boat, and and I initially, um, you know, starting here, uh, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, kind of working and helping out, and, and then up until now, it's amazing how much you get, um, eh, your heart gets attached to a company and the employees and the the pride behind you know, what you're doing. And, and that's usually where I'll see like something. And I got off of forums and things like that, but I'll get a screenshot of someone making a comment of, um, well, you know, you know, Kafaru, my company's, you know, it's $160 more. I just can't afford it. And I'm like, ah, uh, well, I get it. You know, I understand that, but you're comparing something literally 100% made at a sweatshop. Um, that has yeah. a, a, a you know that's $160 cheaper that literally has uh you know we're paying our guys you know usually 18 to 22 bucks an hour somewhere in there uh you know uh, more than that but yeah. you know on average uh and they get yeah. like what a dollar 75 an hour 3 bucks an hour on the high end over there and and it's like look guys we're we are feeding America jobs and the economy just like you are it, is there no more like American pride? Like, isn't there something to stand for? And, and I, my heart has definitely gotten attached to that. Yep. I, we're in the exact same boat. And I, I, I had somebody that I, I know peripherally through the pack rafting community the other day. And I, I felt bad. I, I'm in the same boat where I generally try to stay off forums, but every one, once in a while I can't help myself. And we had somebody ask a question about one of our competitors' boats. And I, I sometimes feel bad because I don't want that to just be a flame fest about how bad their product is or something like that. But there was some stuff going back and forth. And, and then somebody jumped on and, and said something about how they were made in China. And, and somebody else said, well, I thought they were made in Colorado. And they're like, no, they're definitely made in China. Well, this, then this person that I kind of know a little bit jumped on and says, um, well, alpaca is basically a Chinese boat that's just assembled in the U.S. And I finally was like, I can't deal with this. You know, I jumped on. I'm like, that's just not true. Like, all of our fabric is sourced here. All of our webbing is sourced here. We make every boat in this factory. And he came back on and was like, well, where does, where does the thread come from that your fabric's woven out of? And I was like, it actually still comes from the U.S. Because we're, you know, we're still fortunate in that there are some government contracting rules that require U.S. sourcing. And so we're able to get a hold of fabric that is fully U.S. made. And, you know, but it was just kind of funny to deal with some of that stuff of like, oh, well, even though 99% of your stuff is here, it's still a Chinese boat. And I was just like, I, I can't deal with this. It, it does get difficult. And every and I've, I you know, be the first to admit, I personally have a, a temper um, and I have to back, <laughs> back away, um, especially when it's um a public place and someone says something and I'm close by and I'm very confrontational and I'm like, Hey man, if you want to say, you know, we're a little bit heavier than what you offer. If you want to say we're a little more expensive, I get that. I'm not going to argue with that. But when you say that, uh, you know, I am lying that our buckles are a hundred percent American made, we get them from the same place. 
you are going to get something out of me you probably don't want because it is such a pain in the ass to keep it that way, to keep it in America, and it's so much more expensive. And we're, you know, and I'm not crying on anyone's shoulder. It's just a fact, and you're in the same boat. I am taking less of a margin to keep it here. And so that's where I get a little bit jumpy. And and I've gotten in, you know, I pat myself on the back. I've gotten a little bit better with age, but when your heart gets attached to something like that, it it is, it is hard to disconnect from it and shine it on there. It is, it is for me. Yeah. No, we're in the same boat. And you know, I've really tried to, where I've tried to step back to is, is like, I get it. If you want to, if you like our competitors vote more, that's, fine that's normal competition if you you know if you got a better deal and 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 that's where you want to put your money i totally get it i just appreciate when there's a little bit more honesty and understanding about what's actually going on going on there and i've seen too much i've seen it and and i'll just throw an example out here so i don't have to you know throw more shade on competitors the other day uh, my wife's sister was like oh i got this new um um, blanket. It's a rumple blanket. I don't know if you've seen those, but they're, the, you know, they're actually based in Portland and uh, it's made here in the U S and Sarah, my wife, Sarah's like, there's no way that's made in the U S. And so we go up and look on it and you go on their website. There is not a single word about where their product is made. But if you look on the about us page, it's like, Oh, we started, we were on a van trip and, we knew there was a need for this lightweight outdoor blanket. And so here's a picture of us sewing the very first one in our shop. And then, you know, we're a hardworking group of 20 people in Portland, Oregon, da, 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 da. And then they literally have a sale running right now where you use, you use the code PDX made. Every single one of their blankets is made in China. And I'm just <laughs> like, you know, that's not, that's what kind of bothers me. Like, just own it, you know. I'll, I'll throw a little bit of credit um, Patagonia's way. I wish they made more of their stuff in the U.S., but at least when I go onto their website, it tells me exactly where each one of those their products was made. And it'll even tell you the factory half the time. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, you know, it's not like there's not factories overseas that don't do decent work. And I've gotten an ad argument before. They do amazing work, but it's still not. We're still we're still not filling yep. any pockets uh, of Americans with you know giving them jobs. So yeah, I don't I won't say that that they can't make a similar quality product overseas. They absolutely can, especially I've noticed you know like uh, Vietnam and Taiwan in particular can produce some really high quality products, and that's the thing for me. It's really not necessarily about that. I love having the ability to make stuff here because I get to see it on a daily basis. And I like the people that it employs. Yeah, ex- exactly. Well, before we beat this dead horse to death anymore, <laughs> um, let's move on to um, you know some of the different models that you you offer, and then maybe. I, so on 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 my end, uh, like I just ordered one, and and for me, I'm not uh, you know my big ass isn't going down a river more than most likely. I pack them into high lakes. That's my thing. Um, yep. They're not uh, bad. I've kind of basically robbed a few parts and pieces of different paddles um, and made one of my own paddles, and I'm going to kind of compare those just because paddle's heavy too. Um, You don't necessarily need it in a high alpine lake, any kind of thrifty, crazy paddle, but um, 
it does increase the odds of catching a lot more in giant fish. And so for us, yep. you know, you think about it, and I tried to c- compare this to, to people like, I can't believe you pack in a raft. I'm like, well, when you go out mule deer scouting or sheep or go mule deer sheep hunting, uh, most guys I know carry an 85 or 95 millimeter spotter in a tripod. That is equivalent to that raft. And they're like, man, I never thought of that. And I'm like, well, I don't do a lot of spreadsheets on weight. And, uh, you know, I'm a knuckle-dragging redneck, but I can count. And eight pounds is eight pounds, right? And whether it's a spotter and tripod or a raft, it's, it's, you know, you're adding the same amount of weight. Oh, yeah. So For for sure. You know, looking at the different models that you, you know, you have, like, I think the scout is the lightest weight. Is that, is that right? Kind of run through the line. Yeah. So we've got models that range from three and a half pounds all the way up to about 14 pounds. And our ultralight models are the scout and the caribou. And we actually use the same base fabric. Um, so pretty much all of our fabric, we do have some different fabric now is a 210 denier, um, high count weave nylon that we laminate with, uh, a polyurethane laminate and for the scout and the caribou we use a lighter polyurethane so we use the same base fabric we just use a lighter laminate um on those because they're not for as much like you know hard river use as i would say so the scout's three and a half pounds it's a pretty small boat but it's a perfect little mountain lake boat the caribou is just just under five pounds and it's a pretty big boat like um you know we have a fair number of hunters that like the caribou a lot because they can put their, we designed it as a really a bike raft. We designed the front so you can put a bike on the front because bike raft is kind of popular. Um, but the hunters are really liking that boat too, because it does have a lot. Of, it's probably the, the biggest, um, um, ratio of carrying capacity to weight of any of our boats. And so if you're, if you're careful with it, you can use the caribou to, to pack out a a whole caribou or something of that size if, if you know what you're doing. And and just to make sure people understand the analogy I was going off of, the spotting scope weighs what the raft weighs and the tripod weighs what yep. the paddle weighs uh, yep. uh, for what exactly. I've got. <laughs> just so people understand what I was getting at because the raft does not weigh eight, but the, the, the spotter and the raft are almost identical and the paddle and the tripod are almost identical. But sorry, I didn't, didn't want to interrupt. I did want to clarify. Oh, no, that. we're... No worries. And then we have our, what you call our alpaca series lineup, which is kind of our all purpose pack rafts. And we have a model in there called the classic, which is, you know, if you, most people who know anything about pack rafting, when they think of a pack raft, they think of our classic model, because that's what we've been making for 20 years. And that's what most other companies em- emulate. And it's our most popular model, super durable, reasonable weight. You're looking at five pounds for an open classic, all the way up to about eight pounds for one with a spray deck and um uh zipper so for people to understand um about eight years ago we started installing a t-zip air type zipper in the stern of some of our models and that allows you to put your gear inside the tube it's super critical for trips where you're act where you're really going to be carrying a, a fair amount of gear and weight because it just gives you a tremendous amount more storage space and for hunting that's really important too I generally don't put my meat inside the tubes, but I know hunters that do. I like to put my gear inside the tubes where it stays dry and, and safe, and then I put my meat outside the tubes. But So we've got the classic, and then we've got a bunch of high-end, what I call whitewater models, that are more high-performance running like harder whitewater. 
And then we have what we call our tandem series, and those are uh, two-person boats. And we have a canoe called the Oryx, which is um, my favorite boat for kind of backcountry fishing. And then we our biggest boat is called the Forager, and that boat's 14 pounds, but we listed it as a 1,000-pound weight capacity. It's tight, but you can pack out a moose in that boat. Gotcha. Now, when um, you know, as far as like you, your capac, your um, your labor force about the same size as ours. Um, how many? Yeah. How many customer service representatives do you have, and then and are they fairly? Um, are, are they outdoors men and women, and and fairly um, you know, up on the product as far as using it themselves? Yeah. So we have um, we have. Two people in regular customer service, and then we have a, a couple of people dedicated to uh, wholesale dealers, and then we only we have one marketing person. And so if you're if you're if you call or email us or send us a message on Facebook or something like that, you're probably going to get one of our two customer service people. They're pretty dialed on the boat. Uh, they're not um, because we have such a huge spectrum of users, all the way from you know, just people getting out on the local lake to people doing, you know, backcountry class four or five whitewater to people like you guys are getting out and like doing just some unbelievable hunts out there. You know, our customer service people, they don't span the full spectrum of, of uses, but they, they talk to enough people that they know pretty well what's going on. And they're pretty good also about if you call them, you got some super technical like hunting or fishing question. They won't just blow smoke up your ass and, and, and tell you something what you want to hear. They'll call me or one of the other people. Um, we've got a couple of people that actually make boats that are, that are pretty dedicated outdoorsmen and they'll ask them and say, you know, what do you think about this? And we'll be like, yeah, no, that's awesome. Or no, I wouldn't do that or that doesn't work. So we're, we really try to make sure that we can help people out. Gotcha. I only ask cause we're in the same, same type of thing. And if it, you know, when, <laughs> yeah. when, when in doubt, like uh, if they have a question, let's say on something that they have not experienced, which happens, right? I mean, especially you're you're paying, um, you know, someone, you know, eighteen to twenty-two bucks an hour. They probably haven't been on too many doll sheep hunts or uh, Yukon moose hunts, just because they're <laughs> so expensive. And so they'll relay them to me, yeah. you know, and then I'll answer what I can. And, and when in doubt, I'll just send them to one of my buddies that lives up there, like, hey. I don't feel comfortable answering this or my buddy runs our stuff and he lives up there. Give him a call. Cause the worst thing I hate is strolling into, um, you know, I won't mention any names, one of the big box stores. And I go back to the archery range and I've, I've got someone who's, you know, relatively young explaining to me what I should be doing. That doesn't have a lot of experience <laughs> and, and, and maybe they get a bonus or for a discount for selling yeah. something specifically. And again, you know, you don't want to go out there and have a big dick contest of, look, kid, uh, I've done yeah. that. You know, I don't want to do that. But I'm also like, man, my customer service will never be that way. Like, when they don't know, they're just like, yeah, we, you know what, we'll get you in charge, you know, touch with someone that does know. And I've heard that about you guys, that you're the same way. Yeah. Let me, let me, I don't know is an acceptable answer to somebody. Let me ask. Oh yeah. Oh, well, and uh, if you do know everything, you're lying, right? I mean, there's just, you can't know exactly everything. And that's one of the, the guys have asked me about your, your pack wraps, you know, fairly frequently. And you, you guys have a lot of, um, heavy hitters, uh, using them in the outdoor industry. And I'm like, Hey, look, 
I'm a one trick pony. Like I know one thing and that's backpacking into Alpine lakes and, and catching, you know, piles of cutthroat and, and rainbows. Yep. Uh, the end. That's all I got for you. You know, I don't know about rafting and I would probably be drowned if I told you. So I, that's nice with your company because you get realistic answers and you don't push things on people that they don't need or you won't sell something, um, you know, that, that, like go to uh, you go to an archery range and um, the only draw length on yeah. the wall is twenty eight and a half and they're at twenty nine. They'll just put a longer D loop on it and kind of rig it. Not good shops, but some do. I'm not bashing pro shops yeah. where you guys are made to order. You're they're going to get what they want. Yeah, exactly. The the hardest thing we have with that is that we don't have a, a ton of dealers out there, and so there's not as much opportunity to say sit in the size that you want before you buy, but. You know, I'd say out of a lot of orders a year, we, we get less than 10 where the person doesn't get the right product the first time out. And, um, in almost every case, we'll work with them to make sure that we get them the right thing. You know, I've, I've got a, I'll, I'll laugh and say my, one of my favorite things about being a business owner is, you know, I do not subscribe to the philosophy that the customer is always right. I'm sorry I don't. Um, but if it's our mistake or we've maybe misled somebody, I'm going to do everything in our power to make it right. And if, if it's a person that's just trying to be a jerk and we get this every once in a while where you get somebody that's mad and they think they were something and, and they just want to abuse our customer service people, I am so happy to just call them out on the BS and just say, you know, look, we don't, I, I don't want your business if that's what it is. You can go, you know, there's other companies you can buy a raft from. Ah, we're in the, it's funny you bring that up because I'm super protective of, of the, the customer and they, they, they never hardly ever complain. And occasionally, you know, when you've, when yeah. you, when you've got me on the phone, one of two things has gone on. You are a, such a fucking dick that they've got me <laughs> to block you for the rest of your life and scream at you, or you just have a super technical question. So if, if the yep. phone gets handed to me and you're being an a-hole, you're probably not going to get the answer that you thought you were when they say, you know, let, you know, let me talk to your supervisor. Uh, well, if you've gotten to yep. me, I run the company. So we have blocked in the last five years, seven people from ever buying from us, uh, again for the simple fact yep. that we try so hard to make someone's experience pleasant and bend over backwards that if you've gotten to that level, we don't want your business. Like you're that much of a pain in the ass and probably for anyone you deal with in life. And and it doesn't bother me to do that at, at all. Like same thing you said, Hey, you know what? Go be someone else's yep. problem. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. Now I don't want to turn customers away. I want to take care of people. If somebody's nice and so, or something screwed up, I'm going to take care of them. Like, you know, and we've had situations like that. We've made slightly the wrong boat. We didn't realize it or, you know, we've had stuff that's shipped out that's a, that's just a little bit, you know, you make mistakes. That's, that's the reality of life. And I've, I've literally called in our production manager, you know, after hours and been like, man, this boat went out to the wrong person. They're leaving on a trip in two days. And normally it's, you know, six, 10 weeks to get a boat. And I'm like, can we make them a boat tonight? And I'm going to overnight it to them. I'll, I'll do that for you if, if, if it's our problem. Yeah. But if you just want, want to be a, jer a jerk, then, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, we're a healthy small business that's 
that's doing fairly well. I don't need every customer that I could possibly ever, ever get. I want good customers. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the same boat. I'll give an example for listeners. So they don't think me or you are total dicks. Um, <laughs> we, we are, t- our teepees, you, you can't leave them in the sun forever. Just like you couldn't leave yeah. a raft in the, in the, you know, the yeah. sun forever. Um, a guy had uh teepee issues. He left it up and it, it blew down. He called me and give you an idea of, so he said, what's the life expectancy of a tent? And I said, well, when we say uh, warranted for life, it's not your lifetime. It's the lifetime of the product. And so for teepees, we say eight years. And he's like, well, I've had it for seven. And I'm like, yeah, you left it in the sun, though, for like half of its life and a windstorm hit it. So, man, I want to treat you right. What I'll do is I'll give you a brand new one for 40 percent off. You know, it's seven years old. That's about as good as I can do just for the simple fact you left it up and it says not to. Uh, that conversation spiraled downhill cr- very quickly. And he brought up North Face, which, as you probably know, uh, right yep. now is right there with Walmart. Um, they have not they are not who they used to be on their standard line. There is an expedition line. And I'm like, well, man, that shit's all made in China with a 700 percent markup. Oh, I'm I'm sure they did give you a free one when yours blew blew down. Did you leave it up for seven years? I'm like, man, we gotta we gotta find some middle ground here. Like, I'm not trying to screw you. So that guy will never shop with us again. I'll shorten the story because I'm like, dude, forty percent off a seven year old product that you damaged by your own you know wrongdoings. I think is a pretty good deal. Like, if I took a vehicle yeah. in and said, hey. uh, you know, I ran, uh, you know, I went 15,000 miles over on every oil change and the engine blew up and they're like, you can have a brand new vehicle for 40% off because you're a dumb shit. We're going to help you out anyway. I would find that acceptable. I'd be pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the type of problems I, no. I'm talking about. So. No, that's it. That's exactly right. And we, you know, we, we offer a very similar lifetime warranty and it's, it's the life of the product and, and, and it's, it's materials and it's defects and materials and, and workmanship. Not, you know, if you go scrape down desert rivers, which people do, you're, you, you might get only five to, to seven years out of the boat just because the desert sand is so harsh. You know, you work on that, but that's like probably 300 days of boating over seven years in, with a five and a half pound boat. That's most people. And most people that do that are like, they are more than happy that they got that much life out of the boat. But. You send a boat back to us that's 15 years old and um, the steam tape has um, peeled up and failed. Yeah, maybe that's the lifespan of the boat, but in almost every case, I've just replaced that boat completely because I'm like, yeah, that steam should not have, have deteriorated on that. Yeah, yeah, we're in the same boat, same type of deal. And, you know, we get guys, um, you know, they drag their packs on, um, you know, rocks and rub holes in it and not, not craftsmanship, yep. you know, nothing like that. And, uh, you know, we're generally like within reason anyway. Um, hey, you just pay shipping and we'll cover the the warranty. Or, hey, man, 20 bucks and we'll patch up the holes. Uh, y- overall, like yeah. for me, um, and of course, you know, being in the outdoor industry, if I, the worst thing like you can do on a, on a raft for me is when you're diving into the shore, a little bit uncontrollable winds and you're diving into a brush pile. Yeah. Eh, yeah, it's probably your fault, right? You jam that thing straight into a sharp stick. 
um, I am more yeah. than willing to pay to get it fixed, especially when yeah. it's, you know, a decent fee. My problem is I can't remember to ship it to you, but paying for the, the, the thing. <laughs> if So if you kick yeah. your pack off a cliff with a mountain goat in it and it has a hole in it, you've got balls the size of a dump truck to call me and say your pack failed. It's like, well, you kicked it off a cliff, man. <laughs> and we get that. We do. And, I, and you know, it's crazy. Yeah, we do too, but for the most part... You know, one of the things I say is like, you know, and you guys probably experienced this. You remember the the small handful of real pain in the butt customers, and um, but you know, out of the many thousands of other customers, I love our customers. They are really good people to us. Yeah, and I, 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 we have some of the most phenomenal customers as you do. Like, super supportive. They defend us on online and on forums and. You know, I do a lot of like Q and A's and and answer people's questions, whether it be on you know archery setups, footwear, or backpacks, to you know yep. try to go that extra mile to help people out in their outdoor experience and and you know save them money. Um, and we, you know, one of the reasons I do that, especially to 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 our you know it to people who own Kafaru products, is the simple fact that it's a total package and. I want them to get their money's worth. Now, I can't help everyone, but uh, it's cool to help, um, you know, people get into the outdoor industry. And I, yep. I I have a certain level that I will help someone that's running a competitor's pack. But I eventually I'm going to stop giving you free info. But, you know, I really like to help people get in the outdoors. And, you you know, you're probably not going to get that from uh, North Face or, uh, you know, Mamut or something. I mean, you're, yep. you're just not going to get that. Oh no! At some point, you just the, the scale gets uh, just unbelievably too big. What you lose uh, that personal experience? Oh yeah, exactly. What do um? What would you say some of the more um, crisis level things that that you can't believe your pack rafts have made it through with uh, stories that if people have told you or called in uh, doing things that you would never recommend that the the raft actually made it. Do you have anything like that? Like I saw a moose strapped to one of your rafts and was like, Jesus Christ, that thing's going to flip over forward, um, in a photo. So, uh, you know, you got anything like that? Um, really not bragging, but just funny stories. (laughs) Oh yeah. I got a, I got a couple. Um, I, you know, and I'll go all the way back to the beginning. So our earliest pack rafts are these just super simple little round, look like a miniature raft. They're, you know, they're much more sophisticated and fancy today. And there's a, um, there's a bison hunt in Alaska up, up in the, um, Chitna area. And these guys drew a tag and this is like 2003 and they, uh, drew this bison tag and they wanted to get up there and be able, and I can't remember, um, you know, I'm sorry if I get these details wrong, but I think there had something to do with, they weren't allowed to do, um, any kind of like motorized support. And it may have had to do with that potentially being a subsistent hunt and wrangle stand alliance or something like that. Anyway, they go up there, they get pack rafts from us. And these are the little ones, not the big modern ones, little tiny ones. They go up there, they shoot a bison. And they're like, okay, we got to get this bison out of here. And a bison, like a moose is big, but a bison is really big. And so they end up piling this bison in on top of their two little tiny rafts. Just like the whole raft is like, it's basically a bison sitting on a raft. And they're like, well, we got to get down this. And the Chitna River, it's a big, glacial, sketchy Alaska River. And 
they sent us a picture of one of the guys like, you know, normally sit down in the raft and he's like fully straddled over the bison with the head on the front of the thing. And he's like trying to like, he's almost like bear hugging it. And he's trying to like hand paddle down the river. And I was just like, how you guys survived that is beyond me. But sure enough, they, you know, they managed to kill a bison and float it out 10 miles. So <laughs> I was like, you know, that, that's not something I recommend, but that's something that uh, people have definitely done. And then um, in 2006, you know, I, I, this is still one of the more ambitious trips I've ever seen. Uh, longtime friends of ours, uh, the, of the company, uh, are named are, um, Brent Higman and um, Aaron McKittrick. And they're um, kind of a, a quirky couple, but they're just amazing adventurers. They walked from downtown Seattle. They were um, graduate students at the University of Washington, and they literally left their house the day their um, lease ended from the summer and they graduated. And they walked to Dutch Harbor, Alaska, and it took them a year. And they just took pack rafts. And, um, they, um, you know, had a whole bunch of food drops, but otherwise they took the same pack raft for the entire trip and they went through the winter to do it. And in the winter, they were dragging the boats on skis, same boat all the way up the inside passage through everything across all that across up through Prince William Sound, all the way down Cook Inlet and then down the Alaska Peninsula and finished out at Dutch Harbor, which is just nutty to me. Uh, yeah, that sounds extremely nutty. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but, what, you know, I was just going to say, you know, we you mentioned like crashing into a stick. We build the boats to handle an unbelievable amount of abuse, and largely that's because they're a densely woven nylon with a really hard and slick polyurethane coating, and then they're run at comparative late feel firm but at relatively low pressure so you hit an object and and they deflect off the object or or, or scrape over it and it, and that's what really keeps them from getting significant tears and holes gotcha so have you have um over the last let's say five years is there anything significant that you've found you know like people with technology with backpacks right there's there's only so far you can go and in, in somewhat uh, in construction, they we used to always say, like, you can have quality, quantity and cost efficiency and you can pick any two of those you want. And with exactly. backpacks and I would say rafts are the same. Uh, it's going to be hard to be super lightweight, super durable and super cheap. You just can't have those. You're, you're giving up something somewhere. Yeah. Is there many breaks in technologies like, on the packs or on the raft side of things? You know, we are still exploring the, you know, I wouldn't say that we're near the ceiling, although we have started to like ease off a little bit in terms of the design implementation. And we've been using the same fabric for, for 10, 15 years. But I do think that there is, is room for improvement in fabric technology. And we're always looking at that. Um, we've been using this fabric called Vectrian. For close to 12 years now, we've been we've been working with it. Problem is, it's just unbelievably expensive. You know how like a, a titanium action rifle will cost you like an extra 1,300 bucks. You know, yep. Vectran, for comparison's sake, you know our nylons cost in the range of um, 20 to 35 dollars a yard. Our cost is what we pay for them, which is pretty is really expensive nylon, but it's not 
that uh, like our high-end Vectrans will sometimes cost upwards of $180 a yard. And on a six-yard boat, you can think about, you know, the price point increase for Vectrans. Um, so there are some cheaper fibers out there that are promising, but a lot of that stuff, I think, is just a matter of, you know, it's technology that's beyond our means as the size of company that we are to sort of leverage. But hopefully as we do grow a little bit, we'll, we'll get to see some of that stuff. But, you know, over, over the last 10 years, the, the major developments in our boats have come less from the fabric side and more from our end of the design side because we've done the, the airtight zippers in the stern, the cargo fly. We've developed much more high performance designs and then, um, we've done, um, we've kind of perfected or, or vastly improved things like spray decks, which keep you dry and, and, and make it comfortable. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, like, again, I bounce this, you know, I, my life is, you know, surrounded by backpacks and, and, uh, outdoor gear. So I'm kind of in the same boat where it's not technology as far as the fabrics can't go. I don't think a whole, whole lot farther, you know, on our side of things like yep. the, um, Oh, Cuban fiber type material. Um, you know, yeah. but again, for, for me, it's difficult because, um, I'd say we're like the happy medium company when you come to, uh, weight, right? You, you there's heavier packs out there and there's lighter. I kind of chose the path yeah. of a happy medium where you still get a lot of durability. We've built a lot of prototype packs. Like you talked about, we've got, you know, you said 13 or 30 projects on the table. We have a lot of they just don't come off the table because I'm like, well, I, fuck, I broke that. That isn't going to fly, you yeah. know, or and a lot of it comes yeah. down to do you want a guy to fail on the side of the mountain with your product? And are you willing to make a buck to keep up with the Joneses uh, in that category, knowing that there's a 10 percent chance that that product could fail? And, and we just don't put ourselves in that position. And, and as I said, using your competitors products. Um, they will do that um, in comparison to you. And I know that firsthand. So. Absolutely. We made a boat for two years called the Ghost, and it was less than two pounds. So it was the same boat as the Scout, but it was, but it was under, it was like one pound, 13 ounces. And it was an awesome little boat. But as you can imagine, when you approach that weight, you can't, it, it's, it, it's not durable. And, and we've built our reputation about, around sort of bomb proof Alaska level durability. Like you can go in the back country and yeah, if you have, and we design everything around the idea that it's going to be field repairable. Um, you may need some more advanced skills, but if you've got those skills, you're not going to be left high and dry no matter what you do with your boat. And this ghost boat was so lightweight that it, you know, it was, uh, um, it, you basically had to treat it with kid gloves. And we thought, oh, you know, people will figure it out. No, people did not figure it out. Some people did, and they loved that boat, and they still want it. But, you know, I've got a half dozen emails, including from longtime customers that were like, you know, we took this boat um, into the Grand Canyon, and we did this side hike, and we tried to float back to the um, camp, and we had two of us in the in this boat, and we hit this thing, and the boat and then we we basically had to swim back to camp and that was really dangerous i don't think you should be making a boat like that and i'm just like what so man how was that our problem in a, you should have taken the three <laughs> if you'd taken the three and a half pound one you would have been fine that boat was for like a guy like you 
to go to the mountain lake and just have the lightest possible boat. And you know that this is not a boat you want to run into the shore and run into sticks, but you're like, you know what? I'm willing to save the two pounds because it, I have exactly the right use for it. Yeah, we, we built a pack, oh, I think it was two pounds, eight ounces, or three pounds that was like 6,000 cubic inches uh, a few years ago. And I made the mistake of stuffing a, a gutted, an entire mountain goat in it uh, during the testing <laughs> phase. Uh, I can pack a lot of weight, and I thought, man, let's just see if I can you know, break this damn thing. And got it off. It wasn't that far, you know, a mile or something. wasn't horrible. And honestly... The goats look a lot bigger than they are in Colorado. You know, a, a yep. bit, wasn't that heavy. I mean, I don't know, whatever, a hundred and something pounds. So the problem was, is we had some fine print on there about this is, you know, fragile fabric and it's way, eh, it didn't matter. Jesus, we got almost every one of them yep. back because you, you can't, you can't make a sub three pounds, 6,000 cubic inch. It's like my wife wanting the gun that blows down trees and makes no noise and doesn't kick. You just can't have those things. And so we're careful about that now. Yeah. Yeah. And it just depends on, you know, on the flip side of it, there's a little company out there called Supai that makes sub two pound pack wrap, but that's all they make. And so their customer base expects this astonishingly light, but very delicate boat. And if they came out with a six pound raft, guys would be like, what the hell where your company's built the other way around? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're built around this optimization of like just ultra reliability at reasonable weight and, um, you know, top of the line construction and performance. Yeah. I, I have gotten in trouble making comments about you're worried my pack is 12 ounces more and you're 40 pounds overweight. I've got to get a little bit more PC on that side of things because it's, <laughs> I mean, even though I, I'm trying to be helpful, it's like, hey, man, you know, you might want to keep your eye on the prize and focus on the bigger picture, not worry about 12 ounces on a spreadsheet and, and worry about other things. And my my point to that is, because the pack raft, you know, that. They all correlate. They're all, you know, they're, they, that makes sense with the weight durability is when you, when I do a, a packing list, I could go, let's say for 10 days and on 40 pounds of gear, if I had to, yep. I am going yep. to, uh, probably not be, well, there's no probably, I am not going to be as comfortable. There may be something that happens that my field crafts or skill set uh, can't fix because of, I can't repair it. I can't patch it. My clothing is too lightweight and it got too cold. It's just a risk you take when you go that lightweight. And so when I figure out a gear list, it is applicable to the obstacles I can foresee. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And if you're picking oh, yeah. a pack raft and you grab the caribou to go down, I don't know shit about rapids, whatever level is high and you pick the caribou, you are choosing, this is my personal opinion, you are choosing a 50-50 survival rate, not you, but the raft to or your gear to survive because yeah. you are taking it into a something it wasn't designed for. Um, yeah. and, and I try to explain that to people of like, look, man, not everything's a $100 bill. It doesn't all shit gold. Like it may be an amazing product, but it's an amazing ultra lightweight yeah. product, you know, or... It may be an amazing product, but it's heavy because it's built for long-term durability. So that may not be the product to pack into a high lake. 
uh, you know, things, things like that. Yeah. Just you got to have common sense. Yeah. And I've, I've, you know, long argued that, uh, and most people kind of see it this way, but I've always argued, I said, you know, the reality of, of doing, you know, people get intimidated. A lot of people do get intimidated in the backcountry outdoors. And I get that. And I recognize that my background means I grew up there. So I don't see it the same way that a lot of other people do. But I say it's all about judgment and good judgment will get you so far. Like, you know, sometimes, yeah, there's a lot of suffering that may need to happen, but good judgment can keep you safe through unbelievably terrible conditions. If you just kind of have a sense of what you're capable of and what your equipment's capable of, you can be safe in, in totally crazy stuff. Or if you have bad judgment, you can be dangerous and get hurt doing really benign stuff. And I, the example I love to throw around is, you know, the, the Stikine River in northern British Columbia is probably one of the, you know, five hardest regularly kayaked rivers in the world. Like it's just, you know, unbelievably hard. And I tell people, I said, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely, um, um, take a, um, scout our smallest lightest pack raft through this Dakin. And they, people look at me like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, I just float down to the start of the Canyon. And then I would get out and I'd walk around the Canyon and I'd start floating again. I'd never go near the Canyon. That's where you're going to die. That's, that's good judgment. It, no, I, I, same kind of an analogy and, and people, you know, for human survival, you, you have an animal across the river that you can't find a crossing. You need to get to it quick. You have to make a judgment call. Do you have the uh, gear with you to build a fire? Uh, is the wa- is yeah. is the shit around you too wet to build a fire? Is there potential you might and and he, down here in Colorado you can fart and start a fire, so it doesn't count here. In BC and <laughs> Alaska, there's places I just couldn't get a fire going. I didn't have enough shit to do it, and I couldn't find anything dry. And making that decision of hey. Once we get over here, we get this thing killed or we don't get it killed. We're going to be wet. We're going to have to stop, kill part of the day, yep. and just dry our shit out. That's a conscious decision that you should make rather than, okay, let's fly across this thing. You get over there. You're soaking wet. You don't get it killed. You don't have anything to build a fire. You have to cross back over, and you're two and a half miles from camp, and it's starting to sleet in, in, in you know hail or snow or whatever that is a bad decision or a good decision, but as long as you make one and, and it's applicable to what's in your pack and your skill set, you are good to go. Getting soaking wet will not matter if you know what you're doing. And same kind of like you yeah. talked about, I'm smart enough to get out of the freaking raft and walk it around the bad shit. Common sense. And, yeah. and like you said, making a decision. A- absolutely. Yeah. It's funny if I, I've, um, you know, I grew up and I had never had tr- trouble with, um, burning willow fires on Alaska river trips and, you know, miserable rain and what have you. And three years ago, I, I, I went blacktail hunting on Kodiak for the first time with a good friend who's really incredible archery hunter. And, and he was like, I was like, Oh, we'll make fires. And, 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 and he's like, and he hunts out there a lot. And he's like, oh, I don't think so. And it's the first place I've been. And I could, I'm like, there's nothing on this island that burns other than the beaches where there's driftwood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and you have to, you have to, you know, you, you are probably a better fire builder than most because of where you're from. And if you can't get one going, uh, you, there's probably, there's a problem, right? Like you're just not going to get one going. 
Yeah, no, it wasn't going to happen. I was like literally cutting down these little willows and I'm like shaving them down. And, it, it, you know, I was just amazed at the water content there because the normally you get, you know, wood dies and it gets in the river and then it, and it stays hard and burnable for a while. On well, Kodiak, it seemed like it went from like live to rotten in like a week. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, a guy asked me like in Northern Idaho, what's good to build a fire. And I was like propane in a blowtorch. And he was like, really? And I was like, <laughs> I'm not fucking with you when we hunt where we're going in and out from the road. And I, and I, and it's that cold up there, especially, you know, late October, November to simplify things. Um, I bring wait, basically what I used to build arrows to heat up hot melt and things like that. It's just a little torch. Yep. Um, I yep. pack that in I turn it on and then I just, I get what should be a fire that I can't start, uh, uh, prepped. And then yep. I just leave the torch on it for like 15 minutes and it does my job for me and it gets the fire, <laughs> everything dried out to get the fire going. And oh, then yeah. I stack wood around it to dry that wood out. But without that torch, which is obviously cheating the system, I could, there's spots up there. I couldn't get a fire going, uh, at certain times of the year, other times of the year start right up. But I, again, is it is it like yeah. oh I really don't want I'm going lightweight today I'm not going to pack that it's like hell no I'm going I don't want to die today and I'm packing that because it's just a little extra weight and and sometimes it's that bad to get a fire going totally I I um I grew up with sled dogs when we moved to Alaska my parents got into dog mushing and we had about fifty dog team in Denali Park and my dad raced the Yukon Quest three times and he has this funny story where. It was it was just miserably cold on the um, Yukon River between Whitehorse and um, Carmack, and he and a couple other mushers had stopped. And I, I think temperatures in you know in the mid 40s, below zero. And they're in the middle of the river, and they're like, "Man, we got to warm up. This is this is the dogs are fine. They're happy." And he said there was an island with like two or three spruce trees on it, and uh, they were like, "Okay, yeah, maybe we should do." Um, try to um, make fire out some of this. And, you know, it's wintertime, so it's just all snow everywhere. And one of them finally was like, no. He's like, you know, my secret is is um, even snow will burn if you pour enough white gas on it. And so he took out a literal full gallon of white gas out of the sled, <laughs> went over to the trees and just poured all the white gas on the tree and lit it. And then the whole tree burned up. And they just stood around and watched these tree trees burn down in the river. I'm, I'm sure they never, you know, that probably wouldn't go over very well today. But Oh, he said it was like the nicest fire ever. They were like fifty feet away while this this burned up the night sky. I, I, you, you know, it's it's. Uh, I have a uh, rain on. It's my hands and feet get super cold. Not really good blood flow yep. in my hands. And you know, it's. I used to carry. Now this, you know, you know where I'm from, right? So it's pretty wet there. Yeah. Um, but there's times, uh, you know, back in the. How old are you now? Actually, I never asked you that. Forty-two. All right, we're in the same boat. So back in the day, the whisper light was all we had. Like that was the stove oh, yeah. of stoves. And I remember mowing lawns and saving up to get one. And even that smell to this day, because I don't use a multi-fuel stove that often anymore. That smell reminds me of my childhood. Yep. Well, yeah, when you first like open the little gas cock and it all like trickles in. Yeah, yeah it, I know it exactly. So. But I got to a point where if we weren't, you know, I didn't need the stove, I would just take that MSR fuel bottle and pretty much do what that guy did. I would just open her up and uh, pour it on there and light her up because the chance, if I couldn't get a fire started, the chance of a forest fire was going on. And I'm sure people are going to be listening to this thinking what a little hellion I was, but 
you know, as a kid back in the day wearing cotton, shitty gear, you know, you're freezing to death, you know, 16 years old. And Marion Lake is a, a lake by where I'm from. And yeah. I, I remember many times packing a canoe in that thing as a dumb shit kid over our head, soaking wet when we got there. And then just pouring white gas on a brush, you know, putting just piling up firewood to, to oh, yeah. dry our crap out. But it's a different space and place and time right now. Like when I was a kid, you know, Sitka gear, uh, you know, no one knew what that, yeah. that, that shit wasn't around. We couldn't afford that. We had like, uh, you know, uh, Carhartt cotton five, whatever they are, Wrangler 550s or Levi's or whatever. Yep. Uh, you just did what you did as a kid. How How none of us died is actually looking back at it. I mean, think about it. When you were 16, if you took a 16-year-old kid yeah. out of school in Denver and did making him do what you were doing, well, they got a survival oh, ratio yeah. of like a week. <laughs> yeah, and you, and it's funny you think about that because it's like we are, you know, from a from a gear perspective, like we are living in the golden age because there's still a lot of awesome stuff to do out there, and you know. Uh, you know, I fondly and nostalgically remember my childhood and all that stuff. But I thought the Eureka Timberline tent, which was a seven and a half pound, like, you know, A-frame, $100 tent. I, I remember saving, like, for my entire year of savings to buy that tent to go backpacking with. And then my early pack rafting trips, people often ask this, like, well, I don't understand why it takes pack rafting 10 years to grow, you know, and, and become you know, much more viable. And I said, well, because people don't really like suffering. And those early trips, we were, had epic raft failures and we were, we didn't have dry suits. We didn't have fancy, you know, stuff like that. We just were, you know, hiking in tennis shoes and we had a nice gear. We had, you know, fleece jackets and, 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 um, stretch woven nylon pants and stuff like that. But we still like our rule of thumb and we were in our early twenties. So we were tougher than I am now. But our rule of thumb was that we would boat, five of us, we would boat until one person began slurring their speech. And that was the cue that somebody was cold enough that they couldn't really like function on their own anymore. But usually the two to three of the rest of the group were still, you know, functioning well enough that they could get a fire going on the bank. And then we warm up and dry up so we could keep boating again. And most people don't are, are smart enough to, n not to do things like that. And you know, but today it's like with the same pack weight, I've got a dry suit, I've got a spray deck on my pack raft, I've got an ultralight paddle, I've got super comfortable gear, I've got a stove that works every time. You know, it's kind of crazy how nice the gear is for the backcountry these days. And when you get into hunting, it's like we got five pound rifles now that have legitimate 400 yard easy range. Like it's crazy. Oh, it's a. Uh... Yeah, it's it is amazing, and you know I don't uh, I don't I try not to do the back in my day thing, you know. But I'm getting in that middle age bracket where I'm not really old <laughs> and I'm not really young. Um, but I, yeah. you know, Camp Trails frame pack is I think what we had back then, and it sucked. Yeah, uh, good good for the time, and you know, air pads were not a thing. We had foam, right? Wasn't any of the world. We just had the green military foam mat. You yeah. might have had something different. That's just what we had. Um, and I, yep. I try, I'm really happy. I grew up that way because it, it made my field craft exponentially higher than it probably would have been compared to now that the easy button, like there was no Google or Instagram or Facebook when you and I were kids. And so you had to learn, you couldn't read what to do. You had to do it. 
Um, or if you had yep. somebody to help you out. And I have found that um, the pass fail experience is much better for learning. Um, be, meaning you go out there and you screw up and it's either you passed or you failed and then you're in a serious amount of pain for a while. I don't suggest that, yep. but you certainly learn and remember better uh, when you <laughs> when you learn that when you learn that way. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, and, and you don't have to be that unsafe. You can go out and, and have all kinds of super fun experiences. I like to tell people a lot of times, you know, and don't get me wrong, I, I am a internet addict, and I spend tons of time looking at trips and where to go and stuff like that. But some of the most fun trips I had, even even. Today is just, you know, ended up picking up a traditional paper map and looking in my local area and be like, huh, I haven't, I haven't, I don't know where that little lake is. I haven't been there before. And just taking a weekend day and walking in there, I end up finding some of the coolest stuff that way. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, as far as putting yourself um, in unsafe conditions, like if you're talking about even building a fire, uh, especially if you do it with like a, a, a ferro, what do they call a, I always call it a flint and steel, but a, a ferro yeah. rot, whatever the hell it is. Um, yep. You know, bridge up, start first, build it with a lighter, matches, you know, and then, you know, kind of go more primitive as you get better with that at your house and then go do it in the field. And then once you're out there, learn where to find dry wood. Um, it's not everywhere in places. Sometimes you really do have to get your, like Colorado, pretty much everything's dry. Like you're not going to have a whole lot of problems here finding dry wood. But, um, you know, I was, I was, I was giving a seminar and I was like, Hey, look, down trees are a good place to start, right? The bottom side is, yep. you know, high, high, higher probability of being dry and then prepping your, your site for building a fire and get everything ready. You know, when you have, um, everything in your hands at your house, it'll be easy to get going. But when you're limited on what you've got, um, you know, people, they need to practice that and learn that. And, and it lasts a lifetime. I mean, it's, it's something that is, it's, Oh, totally. I was, I was talking about like writing the top 10 list of things to be a man, uh, not to, not trying to be chauvinist things to be an outdoorsman. Um, building a yeah. fire is up there at the top, you know, it's important. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's funny how like, yeah, down, especially this year it's been so dry. Like I'm like, Oh yeah, if I want to build a fire, you know, it's been fire bands, so I haven't, but you know, if I want to build a fire right now, I just go to the nearest tree and break off the, the bottom things and just like hold them in my hand and light it, stick a lighter underneath them, fire lights, and I put them in the fire thing and then start piling stuff on it. It's that easy. Whereas, you know, when it's miserable, like in Western Alaska and it's just been raining forever, like I pull into camp and I'm like, I pull out the MSR reactor stove and then, and I'll like just put it down there and I'll just turn it on and start putting wood on top of it. And I'm like, Oh, this is probably dangerous, but you know, it's so wet that it's going to take a while to dry this stuff out and get it burning. Man, that reactor, we have talked about that a ton. I am not a jet boil fan. Um, I'll be the first to admit I did not have great experiences with the stove, nor did I, they are not hunter friendly. Um, I've gotten in big arguments with this because I was at the outdoor retailer show and, uh, you know, guys will come back to me and say, you know, things like, um, well, they sell in, um, uh, you know, they sell in sporting goods store. Of course they like hunting. And I'm like, yeah, they like hunter's money. I don't think that the higher ups, they really like hunting, but neither here nor there. The reactor is literally the, in my opinion, the most bomb proof, best isobutane stove on the market by far. I don't know that it could be beat. Now it's not the lightest, but it just never no, lets you down. It's an impressive piece of a, 
it's an impressive piece of equipment. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear you. You know, they came out with the wind burner, I think is what they call it. Um, yeah, it sucks. Eh, not my cup of tea. Yeah, it's the I, same technology. I don't understand it. I, I was like, I thought it was just a mini reactor and it looks like one, but the actual reactor is way better. Well, it's it's funny. I, I was using it to heat the ground lined up turkey hunting in the spring because it was so free. It was yeah. snowing. And the one day I gave um, my wife, she had the reactor to heat hers up and I had the wind burner. And it's funny, that was the most noticeable difference. I had a faulty heater in my tent. I'm like, this thing sucks. That reactor, I was sweating. Yeah. And uh, boil time. Yeah. And I mean, it's not a bad option. It's not It's not horrible, but yeah. it's just not a reactor. It's not the same thing. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you another awesome thing for the reactor. It's basically an infrared burner. And so if, you're, if you've been out hunting in the back tree, you get an animal down that's miserable or wet or, or what have you. And like the whole fire thing's just not working out that well. Um, I will tell you that taking like a fresh cut little chunk of, you know, backstrap or, or tenderloin or something like that and cooking it over the reactor. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I've done fish that way too. get your reactor messy, but I just yeah. clean it off. I mean, you can get your reactor super filthy cause it all drips right down into that thing. <laughs> but yeah. it's like, I, you know, it's crazy. Too. It's pretty sweet. I was going to say, you know, I mean, the last thing I'm worried about is a mess reactor. If I'm hungry enough to cook a fish over the top of, uh, you know, my, my stove and not have a pan. And, I, you know, things, things kind of talk about um, long lasting gear, um, you know, which you and I both try to build with with our companies. You know, there's like a list I'm going to post and in that reactors in it. Obviously, your rafts are in it, our packs and things that literally you can count on for the rest of your life. Um, you know, I've yep. been cooking like made coffee while I'm glassing and then water's empty and like a dipshit. I just put it right back on top of the burner and then a gust of wind hits and then, you know, my reactor blows 150 foot down a hill. That's probably happened three times and that thing is still going strong. And that does not happen yep. with every cook system. <laughs> No, no, I have a, um, um, my single favorite piece of gear, tragedy, they don't make it anymore, but there's a company called Evernew Titanium and they used to sell it. Uh, I don't, REI may even still carry the brand, but it's a Japanese, um, titanium brand and they made a four liter titanium pot with an over the top handle. And that was, has been mine probably 22 years old now. And that has been my go-to big backcountry trip pot. Because if we got, you know, maybe four people on a trip, we bring one pot. We can cook over a fire with it. We can put it on a stove. We can do, um, we can hang it. We can do whatever we want with it. And man, that thing is dented smithereens, but it still goes. Yeah, it's funny you bring up Evernew because I, um, I have a Soto wind burner stove that, um, is definitely not the one I'm bringing when the zombies come, but it's lighter weight, and, and occasionally I'll bring that, especially on a, um, you know, a crazy lightweight trip where I don't necessarily need the stove if something goes wrong in an Evernew cook pot. And I have probably six or seven different Evernew systems, and I did not realize like all mine are older. Um, I think yep. that company changed hands like four years ago. Is that right or six? Is when it went over? It must be. Yeah, there was definitely. Yeah, I a, mean, they've always been in Japan, but um, I don't. They may not be making them in Japan anymore, and they definitely their product line is much weaker now. Yeah, it's kind of what I was leading up to. Was I? I, I knew that um, 
there was some kind of, um, I say I knew, I had assumed there was some kind of change in hands. Like anything, um, if the wrong people uh, take over the company or, or on the buyout, generally a lot of times you'll see the first thing they do is try to save money. Um, and it seems like that happened with, with Evernew. Oh, absolutely. Well, man, we've been on over an hour here. Is there anything else you want to uh, cover? Um, that went by quick. I just looked down at the little Zoom counter thing. Um, you know, where can people find you, things things of that nature, what your lead times are, all that type of stuff? Yeah, so we're um, most of our business is, is direct-to-consumer on our online store, alpacagraph.com. That's alpaca with a K. And, um, but we do have um, uh, several dealers around the world. Um, in Alaska, you've got Beaver Sports and Fairbanks and AMH and Anchorage, and then we have um, a variety of shops. Um, three or four in, in lower 48. Um, you know, honestly, it's, uh, as I'm sure you guys have experienced too, it's been such a bizarre year with the roller coaster of spring and COVID and everything else going on. And, you know, everybody wants to be outside right now. So we've actually been really busy the last three months. So we're pushing a nine week lead time right now, which I feel bad about, but. Um, we're making boats as fast as we can. And, um, I, we do really appreciate the business. I know my employees are thrilled to have all the work that they can do right now. Um, but generally we try to keep our lead times in the three to five week range, which most years we're able to do this year, just as a bit of an anomaly. We're in the same boat. I'd make fun of you, but we're just as screwed up. Um, we just can't keep up. I mean, we can't build fast enough and, we're prepping for. Yeah, I went onto your website and I was like, "You're out of everything." I love to see it. it oh, makes me feel better. I had to make a statement like we projected growth, and then of course the growth we projected wasn't nearly enough of a projection. And so, you know, in, in 2021, we're 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 ramping up for a lot more growth. Um, so you know, we're trying to get down to five day ship times, um, which is is difficult, yeah. but I think we can do it. The thing that you know, people from the outside looking in, you know, why can't you make your rafts faster? Oh shit. Why didn't I think of that? Jesus, you're a genius. Yeah. It's not that easy. I mean, it, it, it it takes time. And if we mass produce them, um, you lose, I, I, I personally believe when things are mass produced, you're immediately probably losing 30% quality because you're not putting the heart and soul into each product that, that we try to do. And you guys are in the same boat. So yeah, you lose the, you lose the detail and you lose the personal touch. And, and, and there is a side to that where, uh, you know, mass produced stuff can sometimes look better. I mean, you think about an Apple product and how well it's merchandised, for example, you know, and everything's always the same. Um, and you know, it's different when you get, it's kind of like, you know, you can think about it almost like how, um, maybe bows are done in, in terms of, you know, Modern high-end compound bows should, you know, mass production is, is in general somewhat okay because you're basically precision casting and forming all that stuff. You know, that's very different from a trad bow, which is, you know, as anybody that knows, if you see a mass-produced trad bow, you're like, I don't want to touch that thing versus the one that's built by hand. Yeah, if you get into the de- details, there might be some minor imperfections there, but the function is perfection. Right, right, exactly. And I mean... When you, you know, people talk about, well, if they're made to order, why don't you make them custom? So I'm like, oh, you want a four color backpack? Well, that's like 20 layups. We have to get one person to go pick out each color. And it's something I kind of want to film so people understand the process because 
from the outside looking in, I get it. I can understand why people would think that you could just go cut out a pattern and build it. Um, but you think yep. ship times are long, lead times are long now. Uh, they're going to be really long if we started doing that. Like, you know, that and we'd go out of business because that's almost impossible to make any money doing that. Um, but with any any type yep. of speed and, and you, just imagining what you guys are cutting because your fabric's way harder to cut than ours. We can at least cut 50 yep. deep. <laughs> I don't know that you can yep. do that. Well, I'll tell you what we finally invested in a automated um, cutting table this last fall specifically because it allowed us to um, improve production um many aspects of our production uh one of one of which is that we're able to cut more individually and the other is um this is something that will resonate with you when you guys are cutting we used to cut like 30 deep um was about the most 20 to 30 is about all we could do and then but since we're doing an inflatable product you know all your little attachments like your grab loops and your things like that we have to i mark where those are going to go just like you would mark where your straps are going to go but we have to mark those in sharpie because they can't you can't just punch a hole in the fabric because then you'll have a hole in the boat and so we were having to mark every single piece individually by hand and the um cutting table does all the marking for us and so that's been kind of one of our biggest upgrades over um the last several years no and that We've looked at getting one of those, honestly, so we'll see. They are not cheap. They do not give those things away. <laughs> they do not give them away. It was, a, it was a, you know, and that was the funny thing is we're, we've generally been a pretty frugal company that operates a fairly tight budget, and I spent all this money on it last fall, planning on a super big spring. Mid-March comes, COVID comes, I'm like, with business collapses, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have bought this cutting table. And then a month later, business is like, I can't handle it. And I'm like, thank goodness I bought this cutting table. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, same thing. Same thing for us. So we got busier than we thought we would after COVID. So either way, I'm sure it's the American-made uh, thing, which I'm, I'm happy to see. Yeah. But, oh. And making stuff to order is, a, is you know, kind of as helps because people that are making stuff overseas, they're having harder times getting the product on the shelf. Yeah. You know, whereas us, it's just pushing the lead time back, which I feel bad about, but it's like, we still, we're, you know, we're going to be here making stuff. We're still able to get our fabric from our suppliers and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. Well, man, I, I appreciate you coming on. I highly suggest anybody looking at getting a pack raft, uh, check out Alpaca. They have a, a huge line and, and, and really, I don't know that you could, there's not, um, a task that you need to handle that they don't offer a raft for. So, man, I appreciate you guys being made in America. I appreciate you coming on and, and I look forward to working with you guys in the future. It's, it's been great so far. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on and, um, I'm, I'm really excited about what you guys do as well. Um, I love the sort of, you know, I, I feel like the, the, the outdoor, you know, and, and, you know, regular outdoor market, the hunting market, the fishing market, you know, there's, been a lot of growth in what I would call the, you know, cottage plus industry over the last 10 years. And I think that's just great for the industry. Definitely. Definitely. Well, cool, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again for, for coming on. We'll stay in touch and good luck this season. All right. Thanks a lot. Yep. Take it easy, man.